Get this and get it straight. Crime's a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. This one had soft brown eyes and an accent, and she came to town with a job to do. But before it was done, death had struck three times. Then she was gone. And all because of 30 drops of pigeon's blood, worth 150,000 bucks. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Pigeon's Blood. At five o'clock of any weekday afternoon... The lobby of the started building in downtown Los Angeles is a mess of milling office workers. So I was ten impolite minutes peering into chattering faces before I found my new client, Charlene Danielle. When she'd called me an hour ago, her slight French accent had been coated with worry as she identified herself as an illustrator for a fashion magazine with offices in the building and said that she needed help. She was huddled in a shadowed far corner of the lobby like a frightened puppy going through his first thunderstorm. When I was close to her, she stepped into the light and hurriedly took my arm. I am glad you didn't disappoint me, Mr. Marlowe. Come along, please, quickly. There's a bar just across the lobby where we can talk. All right. Come along, please. It's already late. Soft, lustrous hair that was shingled into a thousand short curls which kept running into one another framed a beautiful face and a wisp of a smile that never seemed to leave her lips labeled her gentle people. I couldn't quite get over it. When we were inside the bar and seated at the table, she was still talking. And I was still thinking how lovely she was. Mr. Marlowe. Mr. Marlowe, are you listening? Hmm? Oh, yes, of course I am. Yes. Now, what I want you to do is simple, but very, very important. It, it must be done at once. It... Easy, easy, honey. That's not going to help any. Now, one step at a time. What is it, Charlie? I'm sorry. It's a terrible man named Marty Loomis. He lives here in Los Angeles on North Rossmore Street, number 7710, mm -hmm. a private house. He is the one who had the collection stolen from Vivian's father. I know hey, he hey, is... Hey, 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 wait a minute. Whoa. Slow around the corners, huh? Now, first of all, what's the collection of? Rubies, Mr. Marlowe. Rare pigeon's blood rubies. Uh -huh. Exquisite ones. The 30 of them worth at least, the very least, $150,000. Hmm. Tell me, are all the rubies as lovely as you are? Please, Mr. Marlowe. Okay, okay. Who's Vivian? My best friend, the girl I grew up with in Lyon. She's still in France, but I got out before the war to Mexico and Venada. Mm -hmm. Some friends at the Riviera Pacifico helped me to get to California. Vivian and her father, Maurice Chardot, an old man now, they lost everything they had, family, a home, their business, and then they had only the rubies left. Which should bring us to this guy Loomis, huh? It does. Mr. Marlowe, he was in France only last month, a guest in the Chardot home. A charming American businessman who was going to buy the rubies. But it just wouldn't say when. Tell me, Charlene, did anybody actually see him take the stones? No, but uh. there's no doubt that he did it, Mr. Marlowe. He was one of the few persons who knew where Monsieur Jardot kept them. What about the police? Oh, no, no, Mr. Marlowe, not yet. Only when we know that Loomis still has the stones, when we know where the rubies are. You see, any hurried arrest would only mean that the jewels would be gotten rid of. 
gone forever. Why isn't Vivian here, uh, Monsieur Jardot? I told you. He is an old man, a broken man, and they are penniless. The rubies were going to be sold. That's why this, this Loomis was visiting with them. Now, please, Mr. Marlowe, can you do this for me? Can you find out where the jewels are? It, it would mean so much if we can return them. So much. Yeah. Where can I find you later, Charlene? I live at the Bradford Arms. The telephone number is Sunset 10229. 10229. Now, mm-hmm. now, what is your fee, Keith? Well, I... We'll talk about it later, huh? All right. You are kind. I, I only hope that later isn't too far away. For Monsieur Jadot's sake? Why, why, yes, for, for everybody's sake. Good luck. Uh, somehow or another, I managed to stop at all the red lights and go on all the green ones and not hit anyone all the way from downtown L.A. where I'd left Charlene, up into Hollywood and over to Marty Loomis's house at 7710 North Rossmore. Parking a half a block away, I stood looking at the rambling White House vintage 1915. I was startled into action by a wiry, white-haired old boy in search of a match. After a quick servicing job, I moved up to the door. As I knocked on the massive display of aging oak, I decided that Marlowe should play the role of crooked jeweler to ease the entrance. But when the door finally opened and an ox in shirney blue surge answered, I wasn't too happy with my choice of roles. A big club would have been better. Yeah? What do you want? Marty Loomis. Is he in? Who's asking questions? Uh, the name's Becker. A mutual friend recommended me to him. Does uh, Lefty know about this? He should. Why don't you ask him? Okay. Come on in and relax while I find out. Thanks. Any place in particular? Yeah. Flat on your... Oh! Big mouth. And don't bother going for your gun. I'll, I'll do it for you. Ah. Nice 38 at that. Now, your wallet. <laughs> Lefty. <laughs> Thought you were picking up your cue fast, didn't you, Mr... Oh, Marlowe, huh? Private detective. What were you thinking about when you bit, Big Mouth? Something nice and calico? You're warm, Buster. My mistake. Where do we go from here? You? No place. Till I make a phone call. Excuse me. Big jerk. Westwood 9903. Yeah. My my number? Uh, Gladstone, uh, 2742. This won't take long, Marlowe, then you and I can... Uh... Oh, hello, Tony. Oh, it's Chalky. No, no, I looked every place. No, honey, I, I tell you the stuff just ain't here, but something else is. A private dick named Marlowe. Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, probably one of that stinking Slater's boys. But you don't have to worry about Marlowe. So long, babe. Your mother, Chalky? Listen, Louse, I got one question to ask you, and I want a straight answer fast. Are you working for Zig Slater? I don't remember. Well, that's too bad. You know I might have to get nasty if you don't cooperate. Doesn't much make any difference whether I cooperate or not. Let's face it, huh, Chalky? All right. Let's do it! Just... Ah! Big mouth. time I sorted my legs out from those that belonged to the coffee table, Chalky was gone. But in his wake, there were three things that a very fast, superficial search revealed. 
My gun in the hall outside, empty. Next to the door, my wallet intact. Near the overturned coffee table, a pawn ticket from the Ryan Loan Company, corner Hill and Eighth. Receipt for one gray top coat, right sleeve ripped, allowing seven dollars and fifty cents. I dropped it into my pocket, then put through a call to one lieutenant he borrowed, police headquarters. In a few minutes, I knew that Zig Slater was a fence who had done time twice on stolen property charges, and at present could be found in or around a shop on La Cienega Boulevard near Melrose, where he sold, of all things, tropical fish. I hung up and started out of the door of my car. But in less than 50 feet, I knew I wasn't alone. My shadow was the shock of white hair who earlier had stopped me for a match. It was his turn to be surprised when I suddenly wheeled, grabbed at both his lapels, and shook. Well, well, what are you doing to me? No rumble, Pop. Believe me, I just want to rearrange your marbles. So that when you start talking, it comes out straight. Now, why are you following me? And don't tell me you need me another match. Come on. I'm telling you because I I want to warn you. About what? A giant of a man I just saw near your car. In a beat-up blue surge, maybe? Yeah, 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 that's right. You see, I live across the street, and after you gave me that match, I took my regular evening walk. But when I got back, I saw this man, this giant. He was going to let the air out of your tires, I know, but I stopped him. Yes, sir. I yelled at him real loud, and he ran away. He he cursed me first. Oh. Now, now, aren't you sorry you shook me like you did? Yeah, I am. I'd let you shake me back, but there isn't time, Pop. Well, no matter, fella. I guess I can figure it all right. I mean, the way you're acting must be a beautiful girl behind there someplace. Always is. Right? Right. Just to make sure she stays that way, you'll excuse me, but I gotta see a man about some tropical fish. So long, Pop. Zig Slater's place on La Cienega was three walls, lined almost solid with bubbling tanks that were home for the kind of screwy-looking fish that made you wonder what they could possibly see with a bad case of DTs. Slater was small and slight with black darting eyes that were too large for the rest of his face, which was prune-winkled, shaped like a Coke bottle and had all the come-hither look of an octopus. He was on the phone. It wasn't until I was close enough to hear the number he was after that I Operator. was glad he was having Operator, trouble. That was the wrong number. Because it was the same digit arrangement that Chalky had called earlier. Hello, and operator. prefixed Westwood as well. No, Operator, I did not call 9933. It was Westwood 9903. That's right. All three, yeah. Stupid people. Hello, Toby. It's Ziggy, darling. Where have you been? I tried to reach you half a dozen times. A walk, oh. Oh, well, look, baby, you meet me over at... Wait a minute. Lost something, mister? Uh, why, yes. yes. As a matter of fact, I have. One of my twin uh, uh, sword tails died. I was just admiring yours here. I'd, I'd like to buy one. I'll be right with you. Oh. Uh, meet me at the blue chip in 30 minutes, huh, sweet? Now, don't worry, I'm, I'm a little bit late. I got a few things to do first. Right. Goodbye, baby. Uh, sword tails, mister, are a dollar ten, a dollar thirty-five, and a dollar eighty. What'll it be? What? They started a dollar ten? Uh-huh. At the last place, I only paid ninety cents for a sword tail. Good one, too. Then maybe you'd better go back to the last place, huh? Well, maybe I had. Good night, sir. <laughs> outside in my car and pointed toward the blue chip, which was an ex-speakeasy on Santa Monica Boulevard that had quite never gotten over it, I knew that I had something to work on before it was time to call Charlene and report that so far I had located neither the Rubies nor Marty Loomis. With luck, I could have words with Toby at the blue chip before Slater arrived. So 20 minutes later, when I was there and seated at an all-alone table for two, drink in front of me, I looked up at the sound of high heels clicking toward me. And the five and a half feet of blonde grew out of them and wraparound swayed. When I called Toby by name and she pivoted like she was built on a hinge, 
I was back in business. I don't know you. What do you want? If it's handy, Chalky's telephone number. Chalk... You're Marlowe, aren't you? Yeah, as in private detective, you ought to bounce around. Now, let's not waste any more of each other's time, Toby. Where's Marty Loomis? Oh, sorry. I never heard of him. Or the pigeon blood rubies? Who are you working for, Marlowe? Don't you remember? I'm one of Slater's boys. You're a liar. Not a double-crosser, Toby. Well, well, what do you mean by that? And when you're on the phone with Chalky, Brother Ziggy is referred to as the stinking Slater. But when Slater's on with you, it's sugar and spice all the way around. Which means what? That you're not even close to being on the level with one of them. I discount Chalky because his kind, you hire, pay, and forget. When the job's done, Marlowe, so behave. He's right outside that back door. It's a little thoughtless of you, isn't it, Toby? The lad's topcoats in hockey might catch cold. That I'd hate to see. I'll bet. Now look, Marlowe, once more. What are you after? One rubies, two Marty Loomis. And if I can't help you find either of them? Then I go to Slater. On whose behalf? My client who represents the real owner of the stones. Named what? It escapes me, Toby. Let's just call her a lovely lady from France, huh? From France? Mm. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you were on the side of law and order. What says different? Marty Loomis is dead, Marlowe. Has been all night in the closet of his study at 7710 North Rossmore. What? And just so you don't miss the point, one thing more, I found the body. But first, outside, I found something else. Running away, it was a girl, Marlowe. A girl with a French accent. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, for those who delight in the fast action and faster thinking that thwart the evildoer, CBS brings you three outstanding examples every Sunday. The Green Llama brings you the adventures of wealthy young Jethro Dumont, who uses his knowledge of the mysterious East to combat evil doings on this side of the Pacific. Call the Police summons Police Commissioner Bill Grant to trail the objectionable offender and bring him to justice. Sam Spade, well, what need to enlarge upon the extraordinary exploits of Dashiell Hammett's brilliant private eye, hero of the Maltese Falcon and many other crime classics. You can find these thrilling examples of mystery, adventure, delight every Sunday on most of these CBS stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Pigeon's Blood. And Toby said, French accent, it rocked me right back on my heels. I stood there with my mouth open, trying to reconcile death in a closet with the soft, deep brown of Charlene's eyes. While the blonde in front of me twisted her mouth into a victorious smile, tender as a cobra's. I got up and went out the front way, dragging what was left of my pride behind me. I had to know the truth about Charlene, so I called her. She answered on the first ring, and I made my pitch. I said I thought I knew where the rubies were hidden and told her to meet me at 7710 Rossmore. And I drove to Rossmore and waited, and five minutes later, a cab stopped down the street. And she got out. So I went to meet her. Marlowe, is that you? Yeah. Come on, this way, Charlene. Are they here, Marlowe? In, in this house, the rubies, I mean. We'll find out, baby. Come on. But you Side said door's that... open. I said I wasn't sure, and I'm not. About a lot of things. Here, watch the stairs. They should lead to the study. Yes. You still with me? I'm coming. Yeah. This is it. Oh. Okay, Charlene. Now, if I've been lied to, this is the place to check. We'll start with that closet there. But the closet? Yes, open it up. Go on, open it. All right. I... No, no, I can't. I you can't, can't because I... you already know what's inside, don't you? Well, I'll open it for no, you. No, 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 no. Oh. oh, I, 
You knew he was there, so he must have been in here before. Yes, yes, I was, I admit it. I tried to see Lomas myself this afternoon. I, I followed him downtown, but I lost him. When I got back here, I came in and I, I found him like that. I didn't know what to do. I, I called you, but then I lied to you because I was afraid. And you're still afraid, so maybe you're still lying. No, no, this time is the truth, I swear. All of it? it? You're not holding anything back? I, no, no, that's all of it. Oh, Phil, please don't force me. Please, you must trust yeah. What was that? What was what? I, I thought I heard a door close. I, I must be jumpy. I guess, may I have a cigarette? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you dropped something. Hmm? Why, why, it's a pawn ticket. Oh, yeah, it's my brains, can't you tell? The Ryan Loan Company, corner Hill Street and 8th. At Hill and 8th. Don't worry about it, Charlene. It's not mine. Belongs to a guy named Chalky, who had to huck his winter wardrobe to keep himself in hamburgers. Forget it. You want that cigarette or not? Not now. Come on, Phil. Let's get out of this room. Come on, please. I... Phil, there is someone here. A shadow moved on that wall over the back hall. Hey, you're right. Listen, you beat it out that side door. Go back to your hotel and wait there. I'll see who this is. I want to stay with you. Oh, now get out of Jeez, here. I, hurry, I, hurry. Be careful, Shirley. All right, creep, crawl out of the woodwork. Come on. I know you're present because you left your shadow sticking out. Right about here. Ow! Well, well. Slimy little sword tail salesman himself. <laughs> what are you doing here? Well, I'll tell you, Marlowe, I'm just So you got my name too, huh? And more. From a short talk with a platinum blonde named Toby. Who are you fencing for, Slater? Her or Loomis? Fencing? You find things out, don't you? Well, I didn't want to do it. I've been going straight since I got paroled, but legitimate business has been lousy. So when Loomis wanted you to arrange a deal, you took him up, huh? Yeah, but right away it got too hot. I had it all set until that blonde started cutting in on Loomis. I don't go for that. Nobody's got a chance on a double cross. For instance, I know what's in the closet, see? And Toby's the one that put him there. She told me. Toby killed him? Did she have the stones? I don't know. I guess so. Because she was trying to make me go through with the deal. But I turned her down. Then I had to sap that gorilla Chalky to get away. Ah, it's good, but it won't fit, Slater. Why'd you come back here? To clean up the joint. With my record, all it would take is for my phone number, even my initials to turn up here, and I'm cooked. Where does Toby live? If I tell you, will you give me a break? You'll tell me anyway and fast, or I'll give you a break on the side of your head. Let's have a talk. Okay, okay. 3156 South Ogden Drive, Apartment C. Now, how about it, pal? Will you forget you saw me here? You louse, you're whining because things got tough. If they hadn't, you'd be getting calluses from counting money. You're a crummy spider, Slater, so stay out of my way. Because next time we meet, I'll step on you. The little man rolled his big head up at me and grinned. I looked at it a minute, then shoved it hard to one side and walked out. The way things stood, I figured the next move, which was mine, had to be first a call to the police to report Loomis's murder, and second a fast pressure play on a faster blonde named Toby. But I was wrong on both counts because I was halfway to my car when I found out the next move wasn't mine at all. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a shadow easing toward me under the cover of the hedge. With the white-haired duffer again, and the setup was just like before. So I saw no reason why the same maneuver wouldn't work twice. I slowed down to give him plenty of time. When I was sure he was right behind me, I turned fast and swung <laughs> at thin air. How many times do you think you can pull that stunt, son? Okay, it was my mistake. Yes, it was. And don't move because my gun goes off. I want to ask you a few things. I don't feel talkative. Who are you? And what's your racket, son? Philip Marlowe, private detective. What's yours? That doesn't happen to be any of your business, son. Let's just say I'm looking for one Vivian Jardot. Happen to know where she is? Vivian Jardot? Sure. 
Right now, she's in France. Leon, to be specific. Yeah, she's in France right now, like you're in Madagascar. Save yourself trouble, son. Where is she? You know, you wouldn't know the truth if it fell on you. What's your angle, Marlowe? Oh, come on. Let's not be coy. It's the same as yours, a fistful of rubies. <laughs> well, now, you don't say. And I suppose that's why Vivian Jardot's been following Loomis around all afternoon. Vivian again. You won't turn loose, will you? Now, listen, son. The Jardot dame is here in town. I happen to know she hopped off a Norwegian freighter. I finally picked her up right here. She was tagging Loomis, and I tagged her. We played Ring Around the Rosie clear downtown. I lost him in a traffic jam, but I picked up Loomis again for a few minutes at the corner of Hill and 8. The Jardot girl, wait, I lost Wait a minute. Pla- Did you say Loomis was at Hill and 8? Yes, that's right. Why? Because I know a guy who'll give six bucks for a gray topcoat on that corner. So what? So whoever said you can't teach an old dog new tricks was nuts, wasn't it? That one's called slap the pistol and bust the old geezer. Sorry, Pop, it had to be. I got business it won't keep. So long. <laughs> Ran my car, piled in, and headed down Wiltshire Boulevard wide open. Because anyway, I looked at it, Ryan's pawn parlor at Hill and Eighth was home plate, and in the time I'd spent gabbing with Pop, there was a good chance that blood was already being spilled on an old gray top coat with a lining full of rubies. And when I remembered Charlene had walked out with a pawn ticket for that coat in her hand, I got a little sick. When I got to Hill and Eighth, I spotted Ryan's place squeezed into a four-foot crevice between two tall buildings and dark inside. I cut my lights parked, reloaded my thirty-eight, and walked up the alley to the back door was standing open a foot, and inside a flashlight was lying on a table while moving in and out of its beam as she clawed through a rack of second-hand topcoats was Charlene. Had her feet face up on the floor with a nasty gash over one eye. It was a man who no doubt used to answer to the name of Ryan. I used the door open another foot and went in. I got as far as the glow of light before she saw me. Bill! Oh, no, no, Why'd you slug you... him, honey? You had the ticket. You could have just... She didn't slug him, Marlowe. I did. Slater. Yeah, don't turn around. Just toss your gun back here. Come on. That's it. Well, that takes care of everybody now. They're all here so we can get back to work. Aren't you forgetting Toby and her trained ape? No, Toby can't make it. And Chalky won't without her. She can't make it because she's dead. I found a nice closet for her, too. Oh, I told you a fib when I said she killed Loomis. I did that to both of them. Because they were double-crossing me. They were cutting me out of my own deal, and they were laughing about it. I can't stand to have people laugh at me. It's my fault, Phil. I, I didn't wait for you. When I when I realized that Loomis had pawned the coat and not that chokier, I was sure that he had hidden the rubies in it for safekeeping, so I came here and now... And so at... did I, and I caught her. Then I set a little trap for the big, strong man who steps on little spiders. Now you, which coat is it? This one? No! I don't oh, know. so it is this one. Well, give it to me. No, no, you can't take it. Stay away from me. Give you... me that. Charlene, don't be a fool. Let him have the coat. No, the rubies in it are mine. They belong to my father. I came halfway around the world to get them and to take them home, and I won't give them up to this, this grotesque, ugly what? little man. What did I you won't. say? Why, no, you... Get out. No! Slater, he's hit, but... He sure is, son. The door here was as open as an invitation to the old-timers' picnic. I've been listening. Now, don't move now, either one of you. I've still got some business with Miss Vivian Jardot. Hey, come back here. Charlene! You missed. That's your last chance. Believe me, you trigger-happy jerk. She's out the door. Stand aside, son. I've got to get that girl. I don't think so. Whose car is that out there? Yours? Yeah, with a full tank of gas. What are you grinning about? Okay, son, she's gone. Girl, Colton Ruby. Got away from both of us, didn't she? 
And from the look on your face, you're not quite sure whether you've lost or won. Two hectic hours jammed with phone calls, police reports on Toby and Chalky, and long-winded conversation in general went by before the whole mess of dovetailed motives and overlapping authority was straightened out to the point where Detective Lieutenant Ibarra decided to get along without us and turn me in my white-haired pal who, <laughs> who I blush to discover was one Sam Harris, 20 years an officer with the Immigration Service, loose on the town again. In Sam's car, we threaded through the traffic. Big night, wasn't it, son? Yeah. You know, Sam, you should have told me who you were and saved yourself that swollen jaw. Oh, that's all right. In a mix-up like this one was, a few loose teeth are better than a loose tongue any day. All I knew was that Vivian Jardot was an alien who jumped ship. I didn't know a thing about those rubies until I was right in the middle of it. She just made up the whole story, huh? About being Charlene Danielle and working here as an illustrator? That's right. What are you going to do about her, Harris? Well, son, as it works out, I'm on her side now. How's that? She wants to get back to France, and it's my job to see that she does. There won't be any trouble. You know, she's a crazy kid to try what she did alone. Mm. But she made up her mind to get her rubies back, and she did. Yeah. She's pretty, too. Or did you happen to notice? Mm-hmm. You're not listening. I was looking at that medal you got there on your keychain. Pistol marksmanship champion, New York service range. You know, Harris, when you shot at Charlene tonight, you No, uh, wait a minute, son. Mm-hmm. It was dark, and that medal is ten years old. <laughs> Besides, it's not polite to put a man in a spot where he has to argue with his conscience. Mm, my mistake. Well, there's your car exactly where I said it'd be. Right across from the airline passenger gate. Someone who had to make a plane in a hurry must have borrowed it. Amazing, isn't it? Good night, Marlowe. See you again, Sam. And thanks. When Harris drove away, I walked over to my car and got in. But I didn't start up right away. Instead, I just sat there and thought of a plane fading off somewhere in the night. And the girl from France with soft brown eyes... And remembered that I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. But then I saw it. The note stuck over the ignition key. Scribbled on an old envelope in hurried pencil. All it said was... Someday, Sherry. Someday. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Elma Lawton, Edgar Barrier, Gloria Blondell, Herb Butterfield, and Barney Phillips. The special music is by Richard O'Ronk. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... Easy money is a sucker's racket. This time it started as a routine search for a rich girl's fiancé. And the trail led to a silent house haunted by a face at the window 
and blood in an open cedar chest. But before it was over, it became a quest for a corpse that wouldn't sit still. he be in France. The lady took a chance. Hilo, the Dane, will show who could resist romance. You'll be hearing four short lines sung sweetly later tonight, and to some bright, lucky CBS listener, there'll be the key to $50,000 in prizes and cash. It's the new Phantom Voice song on CBS's sensational Saturday Night Sing It Again program, an hour-long bonanza of prizes, music, and gaiety. Phone calls go out to all the nation asking CBS listeners to solve gay little riddle songs. And for those who guess these riddles, it means a chance at the $50,000 Phantom Award. $25,000 in super prizes for solving the Phantom's identity. $25,000 more in cold cash for answering only one more question about the Phantom. Listen closely when Sing It Again comes to you on most of these same CBS network stations just a little later this evening. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. This time it started as a routine search for a rich girl's fiancé, and the trail led to a silent house haunted by a face at the window and blood in an open cedar chest. But before it was over, it became a search for a corpse that wouldn't sit still. From the pen of Raymond Tranfer, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Busy Body. jerked me up off my back and out of the sports page at 9.30 in the evening of an already too long day. On the other end was a warm, feminine voice, aged with a kind of self-assurance that means money, and lots of it. But the words were both hurried and panicky, so after I hung up, I reluctantly waded through the sports section with my feet instead of my eyes, and headed for the coffee shop at Franklin and Bronson, where my new client, who had identified herself as Liz Stewart, said she'd be waiting. A pair of blue eyes at a table in the corner measured me from haircut to shoelaces. So I took the cue and walked over. After we introduced ourselves, I was waved into the chair opposite her. She leaned toward me and started with a rush. Mr. Marlowe, I've got to find a man named Dean Howard as soon as possible. Not exactly a new switch. He's my fiancé. We plan to notify my Uncle Hanley of our engagement tonight. Who is Uncle Hanley? Uncle Hanley Stewart of Stewart Aluminum. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Dean, Dean Howard was to meet me at 7, but he didn't show up. Mm -hmm. And then about a quarter to 8, he called. He started to tell me something about, 
something that he referred to as a horrible mistake, but before he could get it out, we were cut off. Well, I tried to Want call him Want some coffee? Hmm? Coffee. Uh, no, no. no. Okay. I, I tried to call him back, but there was no answer. So I went to his house, but it was locked and dark. And yet his car was still parked outside. Uh-huh. Well, look, Miss Stewart, why don't you save yourself 50 bucks, go home and wait for an apologetic phone call, huh? What do you mean? Well, this stacks up as being a case of cold feet or a little celebration that got out of hand. Either way, there's nothing to worry about. I've come to you for help, Marlowe, not a pat on the head. Okay, okay. I'll assume it's my error for the moment. How long have you known this Dean Howard? Well, I, I met him at a party about three months ago. Mm-hmm. Uncle Hanley and I both liked him tremendously right from the first. I suppose you've considered the possibility of another woman? Well, of course, I'm not a child. I can see that. Well, <laughs> Dean has been deeply troubled for the past week. He wouldn't tell me why, but I, I'm certain that this business tonight is tied in with it. Something's wrong, and I want you to find out what it is. All right, but I'm no leg man for Cupid, so if it turns out to be nothing more than a guy's heart beating in double time, I drop it. Fair enough? Fair enough. She gave me a short list of posh joints she and Dean Howard sometimes visited. And his address, which was 312 Normandy. She said I could reach her at home, which was 28 Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. Well, 50 bucks is 50 bucks, so after she left, I spent a handful of nickels checking the list by phone and drew a complete blank. So I drove out Los Feliz to Normandy and found the number, 312. As I walked up to the door and leaned on the bell, I got the feeling that I was being watched. There was no answer, so I tried the door. It was locked. I threw a look over my shoulder as I walked around the side of the house and caught a glimpse of a face in a window next door, just before the curtain was dropped back into place. The back door of 312 was locked, too, I found out, as did the face next door, which was watching me again from one of the rear windows. There was one answer to that, so I went out in the street and up the steps of the house next door and knocked, good and loud. What do you want? My name's Marlowe, lady. I'm a detective. You may be able to help me. A detective? Mm-hmm. Well, come right in, Mr. Marlowe. It's about time's all I have to say. I'm Agatha Lambrigger. What's he been up to? Who? Investigating that bachelor next door, aren't you? Yes. Oh, <laughs> how'd you know? Huh, stands to reason. I've known all along he's a suspicious character. Yeah? Lived there a year now. Comes and goes at all hours. Drives that fancy car out there. Wears fine clothes, but nobody seems to know what he does or where he gets all his money. Well, look, Mrs. Lamb... And Lam- girl. Oh. Well, believe you me, they don't come to clean his house. Hmm. Never gets cleaned. But they come just the same. Why, only tonight there was one. Some blonde in a white dress. I tell you, I've never Mrs. Lambrigger, did the girl go inside? Well, no, but she tried to. The door was locked. <laughs> and it's uh, Miss Lambrigger. Oh, how stupid of me. <laughs> well, tell me, did you notice Mr. Howard come home tonight? Well, I didn't exactly see him come home. But he was over there all right. And not alone either. Is that so? Another girl? No, no, it was only some man. Oh. But it still bears out what I've been saying. Because I just happened to glance out of my window at this one here across uh-huh. from that one of his, you see. Yes, sir. Well, a light was on over there. And I could look straight down the hallway. And do you know what? What? Those two grown men were roughhousing like a pair of hoodlums in that hall. Wrestling they were like ordinary ruffians. I tell you, I never saw the like. I got a good look at him, and I'd certainly know him if I saw him again. Mm. Well, how'd the fight come out? Fight? Yeah. What the... Oh, oh, the fight. 
Well, well, I can't say about that. My phone rang. It was Lenore Prowley. She simply talks it ear off you when she, she gets does. started. Mm. So when I finally got back to the window, uh, well, when I happened to look out again, it was dark over there. So I never did find out what actually happened. But yes, I well, thanks very he... much for your help. I really must run. Oh, and another thing. The noise and the drinking that's gone on in that house. Why, you wouldn't believe it. Oh, you're leaving? As soon as possible, yes. Yeah. So, but you still haven't told me what he's up to. Well, I'm not at liberty to do that. I, uh... Oh. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Well, I'll be here all the time, you know, and I'll certainly keep an eye on that house. Oh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your going to all this trouble just for me. <laughs> Bonsoir, Miss Slambrigger. I backed out of that wind tunnel, got in my car, and drove noisily around the corner. Then I cut my lights, turned quietly into an alley behind the house, and stopped. Slipped through Howard's back gate and up the side of the house, found a window that could be persuaded and went in. Yeah, Howard was a lousy housekeeper, and everything that didn't get brushed off in normal traffic was covered with dust. I found my way to the room opposite Agatha Lambrigger's observation window and ran smack into her first lie. Where she said there was a hallway, there was a solid wall, papered with purple roses and hung with four dingy pictures in bronze frames, two on each side of a big, ugly mirror. There were two hallways, but no angle at which either could be seen from her window. Furthermore, there was no sign of a struggle. One hall led to the study, the other to the bedroom, and I checked both. But still, there was no indication of a fight. On my way out, I barked my shin on the nose of a lion carved on the corner of an oversized cedar chest, just as the abrupt sound of someone at the door brought me to a rigid halt. Whoever it was had the patience of an eight-year-old on circus day. So I set myself up as the type who might live in a joint like this and entered Hmm. Uh, what's the matter with the lights out? Blow a fuse? Or could this be some new economy measure? I like it this way. I don't think I know you. You should, Howard, you should. I called you yesterday about a certain money matter. The name is Leo. Uh, don't go for your gun, Howard. Well, since yours is pointed at my third rib, why should I? Well, like I told you on the phone, my boss is anxious. You're way overdue, Howard. I want that 50 grand the boss loaned you three months ago. Have it for me the day after tomorrow. All of it. Without fail. He knows I'm good for my debts. Why all the pressure? Well, maybe he figures your investments aren't so smart. Like maybe you've been blowing too much on that second-rate canary, Carol. Oh. Oh, yeah, Carol. I remember. Mm. She's your girl. Yeah, well, that's none of my business. See you day after tomorrow about the same time. And if you get a headache from worrying about paying off, just think of the one you'll have if you don't pay. It'll be like ten times this. Good night. The forty-five in his hand caught the side of my head, and I went out cold. When I opened my eyes, the room had shrunk until there wasn't enough space left to stretch out in. And the climb to my feet. Oh. <clears throat> It was as easy as roller skating through a log jam. And it wasn't until I found a match and had a light that I knew why. Somebody had moved me from the front door and crammed me into a broom closet like a bag of wet wash. When I got out, I saw that my cubby hole was off the hall of the bedroom. I listened, but there was no sound in the house, so I started moving. But stopped when I noticed something else. The big cedar chest with carved lions on the corners that had been closed before now was standing open. I struck another match. Inside on the bottom was a thick red puddle of blood. Blew out the mansion was in the middle of a mental apology to Liz Stewart when it came. Ow! 
I ran for the front door in time to see Agatha charge out of the driveway and down the street. Stark terror twisting her face. Help! Help! Hey, Help! Miss Lambringer, hold it! Oh, Mr. Marlowe! Mr. Marlowe! What is it? What happened? I saw him, Mr. Marlowe. I saw him. Oh, by the alley near the hedge. He's dead, Mr. Marlowe. Dead in my backyard. All I right, all right. Him. Now take it easy, Agatha. It's Who was it? He's there now, lying on his back close to the hedge, and he's dead. What'll we do? Come on, we'll have a look. You can show me where he is. Well, well all right. He, he, he's right back here. I, I happened to look out my rear window, and I, I saw something move. The, the dogs had been getting in my pansies lately, and I, I thought this was another. So I came out to chase him away. That's when I saw the body. It, it's right back here. It's... Well, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Now look, Miss Lambrigger. I've got a headache. I'm getting a little tired of this. You saw a body here just like you saw a fight in the hallway from your window. You're so anxious to be in the middle of things, you'd make up any kind of a story. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I saw that, Python. I saw Dean Howard's body, too. It, it was here, I tell you. Where? Show me exactly. Well, right right about there, I Oh, say. sure, sure. And I suppose it... Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. My apologies, baby. There is something here. Could be blood. Here's two dimes and a bar receipt from the tulip room on the strip. Oh, good heavens. What'll you do now? Raid the place? Y- you can use my phone. Uh, thanks, but until we know where the body is, we better play it cagey. Now, let's keep this a secret between us. That'll take a lot of courage, I know, but I can trust you, oh, can't yes. I? I? I won't open my mouth to a soul, Mr. Marlowe. Well, that's Marlow. great. That's splendid. Now, you better go inside and stay there until you hear from me. Who knows? You may yet be a heroine, Miss Lambrigger. It was a long shot. When I was still two blocks away from the tulip room, I knew it had paid off because a fluorescent banner, 4 by 12 draped over the front of the squat square building, extolled the vocal virtues of one Carol Cody. I parked across the street, went in, and found a dressing room door and knocked. She distinctly said, come in, but when I did, I thought the room was empty until a small handful of spangled satin costume hopped up from behind a screen in the corner. I made a sight-unseen introduction. It was only a moment later that a tall brunette, filling a white silk blouse and snug, dark slacks, stepped out, tossed a few pounds of glossy black hair away from her face and gestured me into a chair. Which paper did you say you were from, Marlowe? I didn't, honey. I'm a private detective. I can't use it. Don't give odds on it, baby. Not yet, anyway, huh? Let's talk first. For instance, what's with you and Dean Howard? Dean Howard is Mm. a low-crawling thing. That's strange. Had it you loved him. I didn't till tonight when I found out that he has two heads. That's so he can lie and keep a straight face with one while he laughs up his sleeve with the other. Nuts to him. Nuts to Liz Stewart and her money and nuts to you. I hate Dean Howard enough to kill him and I might just do that. I don't think you will, no, because somebody beat you to it. You... You mean Howard's dead? Looks that way, yeah. I'm not sure because he won't stay in one place long enough. If you're trying to shock me, you're wasting your time. I'm not sorry. When... I think we've got company. Keep talking. I'll get him. Uh, as you say, my friend, the music business is just as lousy as any other dodge, and I can prove it. Come here. You're a good listener, bud, so join the party. Who are you? Why are you listening out there? Come on. Well, no, no, no. Just, just a minute. I, I wasn't listening. I was looking for you, Marlowe. 
I'm Ward Odom, Mr. Henry Stewart's assistant. You're doing fine. Don't stop now. Well, I... Ever since I learned that Miss Stewart hired you, Marlowe, I've been trying to talk to you. I, I followed you here from that place on, on, on Normandy because I must know what you found out so far. Why? What business is it of yours? Because, Mr. Marlowe, I doubt very much that you even know of the robbery. Robbery? What robbery? More than $40,000 worth of negotiable securities was stolen from Mr. Stewart's safe this evening. You get all your information at keyholes? Hmm. And I have reason to believe that the man you're looking for took them. Of course, I don't dare accuse him without proof of his relationship with Liz, uh, Mr. Stewart's niece. If I were wrong, it, it would cost me my job. Odom, did Liz know about the robbery when she hired me? Why, why, of course. Oh, brother. Look, see this? Her name is Carol. She's involved right up to her mascara in the whole mess. I'll let her out of your sight till I get back. Me? Why, you cheap shot. Shut up! And as for being cheap, I'll take care of you when I get back. <laughs> In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, three gentlemen with highly varying but equally effective approaches to dealing with crime entertain you with their deeds of daring on CBS every Sunday. Jethro Dumont, alias the Green Llama, Police Commissioner Bill Grant of Call the Police, and Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade. These three sterling gentlemen all make their appearances tomorrow on most of these same CBS network stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Busy Body. After convincing Ward Odom that his greatest contribution to the cause would be staying close, but not too close to the violent lady in slacks, I piled into my car and started for Beverly Hills in a beautiful liar named Liz. I didn't stop until I was at number 28 Roxbury Drive out of my car and walking fast up the semicircle of gravel driveway that led to the carefully antique front door. But then, for two good reasons, I stopped again. The first, a squad car parked ahead of me that said everybody except Marlowe knew all about the bonds Mr. Hanley Stewart could no longer call his own. The second reason and more important was my client, Liz Stewart, sneaking out of a side door and hurrying toward a gray coupe. I stepped back into the shadow of a squat palm and waited for her to come abreast of me. Late date, Miss Stewart. What? Marlowe, why, you you startled me. Considering everything, it's the least I can do. What do you mean? I don't like clients who lie to me. So if you don't mind, I'll just stroll along with you while you assure me you can explain everything. But I can, Marlowe. Just give me a chance, please. All right. Why didn't you tell me that 40 grand worth of negotiable bonds disappeared from your uncle's safe at the same time as Howard? Because I didn't want you to be prejudiced, to be looking for a thief from the start. If Dean did take those bonds, he had a reason. Like being fond of money? No, like being forced to do what he did. All right, let's say he was forced. What then? Well, then I wanted to help him, to get to him before the police. They'd arrest him in a minute. And you, on the other hand, would get the bonds back to your uncle, convince him it was all a mistake, and talk him out of telling the law, huh? And with your own dough, you would help Howard out of the spot he was in. Is that it? Yes. But you haven't proved the Dean took the bonds. No, I haven't. Could have been anyone who knew the combination of the library safe. Which includes how many? Uh, aside from Uncle Han and myself, just the, the family lawyer and Mr. Odom. Yeah, what about Odom? Could he have done it, Liz? No, I, I don't think so, as much as I dislike him. Mm. You see, Marlowe, for years, Odom's been very close to Uncle Han. He's had a thousand opportunities to steal if he wanted to. Well, like this afternoon, for instance. He had $10,000 worth of the bonds with him today. What was he doing with all that dough, paying gas bills? He was going to sell them for my uncle. But the transaction fell through, so he brought them back to the house and put them back in the safe. Anyway, Marlowe, I don't think he'd have the courage to steal. I know what you mean. I've already met Mr. Odom. 
When? Oh, about a half hour ago. In a nightclub called the Tulip Room. Odom thinks Dean is guilty, Liz, but he's afraid to mention it publicly until he knows a little more. What's a nightclub got to do with Dean? Carol Cody. Who? She's Dean's girlfriend. Marlowe, you're crazy. I talked to her, honey. She's a singer there. Told me that she and Howard were more than chummy, but that she gave him the air tonight when she found out about you. And you believe that? Mm-hmm. Now that I've had a little time, I believe even more. The tales that she never bothered to mention, the tales like Dean Howard and Carol Cody playing you for a sucker. He gains your confidence, then the combination of the safe, and then goodbye. But you see, the end was a switch, Liz. Dean d- didn't... Dean didn't what? Hmm? What is it, Marlowe? What are you staring at? Back of my car there. That's not gas dripping on the driveway. The color's too red. Liz, stay back. No, Marlowe. I don't want to. I want to... <laughs> Marlowe! It's Dean! He's dead, Marlowe! <laughs> yeah. That, Liz, is the switch I was talking about. I think Dean Howard not only crossed you, but Carol Cody as well. She did it! She killed him! All right, all right. Now listen. Get inside. Tell the police about this. Do you hear me? But first, give me a five-minute lead. I'll take your car. I want to get to Carol Cody before the law does. Without saying another word, Liz Stewart, her face drawn and streaked with tears, handed me the keys to her car and turned and walked slowly back to the house. I took one long look at the blood-soaked shirt front on the body I'd had been a step behind all night then got into Liz's car and pointed it back toward the tulip room. Twenty minutes later, when my knock on the locked dressing room door brought no answer, I had kicked my way in. Alone and half-conscious in the middle of the floor was Ward Odom, a man I'd assigned to stand sentry over the brunette. Oh, Marlo. Marlo, she tricked me. Asked for a cigarette, and I went to light it. She, she... swung. It adds, Odom, and you're lucky she let it go at that. It was more permanent in Howard's case. Oh, oh then, then you found his body, Marlo. Yeah, in the trunk of my car. Oh. Oh, how awful. And she did all that, this Carol Cody? Yes and No. She must have had help, Odom, because, first of all, it takes something stronger than the chanteurs to keep shifting a corpse from cedar chest to garden to car, at the rate that Howard was being moved. And second, an old crow named Agatha Lambriger saw a man roughhousing with Howard over at his own place, not a woman. You, you mean there was a witness to the murder, Marlowe? Well, more or less. And you have no idea who the murderer is? No. And that, Odom, is all the more reason why I want to catch up with Carol Cody. Happen to know where she lives? Uh, why, why, yes, yes, just at the Grayfield Apartment Hotel on mm-hmm. North Havenhurst Drive. It's North Havenhurst. A, it's a room, room 118. 118. And I think that... Marlo! Marlo, wait, my coat is gone. What? Yes, and she was wearing slacks, remember? Marlo, maybe she's leaving town disguised as a man. It's a point, Odom. I still think I'll try the apartment hotel first. <laughs> Doing here. Not doubling for a bellhop, so get over there, sit down, and keep your hands in your lap, because if I have to, I'll shoot. But I don't understand. I'll make it real plain. I think you murdered Dean Howard because he double-crossed you after he emptied Hanley Stewart's safe. And I think you're out of your mind. Which brings us to a position called stalemate, and that in turn makes this a good time to call the cops. I didn't kill Dean. I swear I didn't. Oh, listen to me. What you said about Dean double-crossing me after he stole the bonds is true, but not the way you think it is. Second verse. He didn't want to just cut me out of my share, Marlowe. He wanted to return all the bonds intact. He really fell in love with Liz Stewart and decided to play all-American boy. You mean he decided to call it all off after he'd stolen the yes. bonds? Yes, Marlowe. That was the reason we argued tonight. Well, it's a stronger reason than the one I already had for your committing murder. Baby, you wanted that money bad. No, you're wrong. Come back here! 
Why did you belt Odom and run? And don't bother denying that you did because I just left him. And he's minus good health in that top coat over there. So if you think I that you... I can explain that. I, I was scared that a confession out of Dean would get me into hot water. And when you showed and then Odom, Just I... a minute, Carol. But Marlo, Just I... a minute, will you? I think I've got the answer. What answer? It's dust, Carol. Dust and what an old gossip swears she saw from her window. Right now, I've got to get over to her place before she ends up looking like the late Mr. Howard. Well, then, then you believe me, Marlowe, about not killing Dean. I don't know. But since you've been in and this cheap swindle from the start, we'll what? just tuck you into an old-fashioned wardrobe. Just for safekeeping, baby. <laughs> Outside in Liz's car, I slammed my foot down hard against the accelerator and didn't ease up until I screeched to a stop away from 310 North Normandy, where I knew murder was scheduled to happen again. I was next to a pair of half-open French doors through which I could see Agatha Lambricker sitting erect in a straight-back chair. I was happy that I hadn't taken any longer in getting there. I was also happy that the man standing opposite her gun in hand, the man who had murdered Dean Howard, had his back to me. I got a firm grip on the thirty-eight in my hand. You've been so nosy, Miss Lambricker. And it's too bad that Marlowe had to let me know you've been a witness when I killed Dean Howard. A roughhouse, I think you called it. A roughhouse is what I thought at the time. But when I saw Dean Howard's body out in the alleyway, I knew... You knew I killed him. Everything would have been simple if you hadn't had your nose out a mile. I was going to run over him. And it wouldn't have looked like an accident. But I had to move the body after you saw it. Marlowe's car looked good until I could dispose of it. But there's no point telling you all this. You won't be able to gossip about it, Miss Lambrigger. I'm sorry. Sorry, but that's the way it has to be. You or me. I vote for you, Autumn. Marlo. Drop your gun before I close the polls for good, real noisy-like. Come on, drop it! No! No, don't shoot! I dropped it! I dropped it! Okay. I moved to the middle of the room, hands high. Marlo, Marlo, I didn't want to do it, but I had to kill him. I had to. Dean Howard was going to return the bonds he took, Marlo, and that would have left you in a me. spot, wouldn't it? Because Howard only stole thirty grand out of that safe. You were taking ten grand to legitimately sell for your boss. Yes, I know what. And when you went I to return them, you saw there'd been a theft, and you decided to make the most of it and let somebody else take the rap for the whole forty grand. Marlo, Marlo, Don't worry, a man who shoots another man in the back has no guts. He won't try anything while I'm looking at him. No, no, Marlo. I. I don't have any more guts than it takes to jump behind a woman's skirt. Olivia, I'll choke to death. If you take one more step, now lower your gun and listen. All right. Let her go, Odom. Sure. Sure, let her go. Just as long as you cooperate, Marlo. Marlo. Marlo, don't be a Shut fool. Up. Shut Marlo, up. Marlo, shoot. You kill me anyway. Shoot. No. Shoot. No, don't Marlo. shoot. Marlo, don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. You were right, Marlowe. No guts. It was an ambulance, a half a dozen squad cars, and a police captain included, and three long hours of questions and answers in triplicate later. Before 310 North Normandy and Environ settled back to being just another quiet house on just another quiet street. With, of course, the exception of Miss Agatha Lambrigger, who now would never return to normalcy. <laughs> and as we sipped hot tea together and a clock someplace deep in another room struck twice. Now, Philip, uh, I'm sure I had this She was right. still going strong. Dean Howard owed money, so he and that worthless singer decided that he should get friendly with your wealthy client and then at the propitious moment rob her uncle, correct? Correct, yeah. But what I don't understand is how you knew it was that awful man Odom. Well, there were two things, honey. His anxiety to get me to Carol, together with a streak of dust the length of Odom's topcoat sleeve, all added up to a hunch. That, Philip, I don't understand. Well, you got to take him in reverse order. 
I saw dust on Odom's topcoat sleeve when I was in Carol Cody's apartment. That reminded me of the dust all over Howard's place. Oh, a mess, that house. Yeah, luckily. And the dust was the length of the sleeve, as though somebody had brushed against the wall, coated thick with it. As one would in searching for something, hmm? That's right, that's right. Now, there's another thing. You saw Howard and another man roughhousing in a hall by looking out of that window there. Mm-hmm. Where, Miss Lambrigan, no hall is visible. But where there is a mirror. Oh, then you mean I actually saw a reflection. Yes, darling, you did. Dean Howard hid the bonds behind the mirror. Which tilted so that I saw the reflection of a side hall. That's right. Well, now, Philip, one last question. Why did Odom move the body? Well, if it's the last, I'll answer it. (laughs) Because he didn't want Howard's death to appear a murder on the night the bonds were stolen. It was better if he died accidentally and wasn't connected with the theft. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, now, look, Miss Lambert. Excuse me, I'll only be a minute. Yeah, but Miss Lambert... Hello? Oh, hello, Judith. Miss Lambrigger, really, I... Johnny, it all started so innocently. My part, I mean. Well, it was about seven Miss Lambrigger, I have... Philip, I'll be with you in a minute. Oh. Philip, who? Why, the detective, the one I mentioned earlier. A long minute, I'm sure. Goodbye, girl. got outside, the silence was deafening. And then I remembered that I still had a client up on Roxbury Drive who I had to see. And that there were automobiles to be exchanged, and maybe, if I could find them, some right words to say to a girl who had a very rough night. So I started driving that way, slowly. But ten minutes later, when I was halfway there, I stopped, turned around, and headed back for 310 North Normandy. And my 38 that I'd forgotten after a handful of policemen had finished examining it. It wasn't until I was at Agatha Lambrigger's front door again that I realized something more important. Well, then this Odom, this killer, grabbed me as a shield, Judith, and told Marlowe he had guts enough. <laughs> guts with his word, my dear. Yes, well, I could get my gun another day. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and star, Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lois Corbett, Lorette Philbrandt, Lynn Allen, Peter Leeds, and John Stevenson. The special music is by Richard O'Rant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It began as the threat of a beating that journeyed into murder with a brown-eyed, blonde, a jovial hippopotamus and a tough-ex soldier of fortune. All complicating the problem until I got next to the key man. Will you be listening when $51,000 go on the block during Sing It Again tonight? 26,000 in fabulous prizes for solving the mystery of the Phantom Voice, and additional 25,000 in cold, hard cash for answering only one more question about the Phantom. There's many another prize, too, for unriddling the smart, tuneful little riddle songs that keep singing again, moving at a terrific clip for the hour that it's on the air. It'll be here a little later on most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. 
Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> <laughs> 